Test this one, two and two. Test this one, two and two. The Expanse, Season 5, Episode 3, Mother. Test this one, two and two. Got the HD. Let's see if the stuff floats away here. So come back. And very quick view into what we'll soon find out to be, if you don't already know, Marco's Command Center and the projections of how the rocks are going to decimate Earth. So, in the Expanse books, actually, having gone back now between the show and the books numerous times, I mean, I've read and listened to the books way, 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 way more than uh, I've seen the show, oh, uh, for the most part. Um, but I know the show very well. Uh, and I've talked a bit in the first two episodes, hopefully not too much, uh, about some of the similarities and differences and what I like and don't like in each case. Or I'm fine in both cases. Um... Uh, as is at least as often the case as being dissatisfied uh, or confused at all. Um, I like a lot of their choices. Um, but what's interesting is when you rewatch especially season two and three of The Expanse where they really don't know how to write great for politicians and especially military leaders, especially compared to shows like Battlestar um, or even Stargate Universe and the interactions between the politicians and the military within themselves and one uh, to another. Um, uh, and that continues to be a problem here with this admiral who's got a great look. He's obviously, a, you know, an excellent actor. Um, and they have immediate chemistry and immediate rapport. And he starts telling a terrible joke about, you know, Martian, a belter, an earther, etc. walk into a bar. You know it's not going to pay off. It's a fake red herring, or <laughs> I sometimes refer to as a red herring of a red herring, uh, which um, the uh, now disgraced Joss Whedon <laughs> uh, was was a master at in his uh, uh, properties from Firefly to Avengers and became sort of part of the Avengers humor, which was you set up a lot of just j- things uh, or jokes or just bits that pay off once or many times later within the same movie or even with in subsequent movies. Here they are analyzing military data. Officer Allah can smell it. Um, and uh, we don't see most of this going on behind the scenes before the rocks hit and she becomes leaner by, uh, you know, uh, de- uh, by default. Um, but it's pretty clear it's going on. This, this jibes with everything and the lore of the books and what's been set up in the show so far. Um, but it's not the joke that doesn't pay off uh, the, uh, that frustrates me this particular relationship just as an example uh, but the fact that he then like turns in his admiral's uh, you know, uniform and medals and is going to just become a grunt to go fight the fucking skinnies to kill the belters he seems way too intelligent even if he's you know a right wing or right of center militant guy but he clearly loves and respects officer Allah. he should be the one pushing for her to become prime minister it should happen sooner um uh, as opposed to the interim guy um, uh, in the book she's already second in command we, it had been established that she'd been second in command for a long time and it seemed like it was the established that she was second in command of the UN here uh, for a few seasons uh, leading up to this um, but she still has to wait um, and so she can become the you know the, the military empress that she is in season 6 and put the smack down with the drummer on Marco Inaros. Um am I subtitled or not on is this going to pause my shit Hopefully not. 
Mars is not giving a fuck about blowing us up anymore. Exactly. She's already. I mean, the thing is, you know, if you if you watch the show closely or read and or read the book closely, Avasarala is on to the conspiracy between the three major powers from the beginning. Um, and she's usually right when she attributes something to Earth or to Mars or to the belt or to multiples of them. Uh, when it comes to evil doing, she just can smell it. And there's corruption everywhere, but the specific corruptions or that lead to you know, <laughs> uh, on the far side of that spectrum, just terrible evil with Marco Naros in this episode committing genocide and there's people who supported it um uh, she just she just can smell it uh and then they play this this early part great where they're trying to put it together and then the young you know um asian uh, uh prime minister who's or i'm sorry u.n secretary general you know gets killed on the ship and now there's no command and you know rocks are hitting earth billions are dying um and uh it's all happening so fast that the political and military considerations are, are pretty straightforward. Let's survive and maybe get a counterattack uh, becomes the theme of uh, book um, slash season five. And obviously more on the attack. Let's try and win the war in the book uh, six or season six, um, which we will get to. Um, uh, but back to the uh, admiral buddy of hers there who was telling the bad joke while making the drinks and the ice. And uh, I'm going to get back to the fact, as I mentioned uh, briefly in the intro about how genius of the directing job that Thomas Jane did in this episode. I didn't even know he directed shit. Um, but if you watch him act enough uh, and you love him as an actor and you understand the reasons why big famous people like Stephen King and so forth <laughs> um, love him uh, as an actor and want him in their, in their movies, um, you can totally see his taste all over this. Um, uh in, in the shots, the colors, how everything is lined up. Here's the belters, the polyams, the polyam belter fam. Um, uh, but going back to the books, and I just went through, um, uh, let's just put it this way. I just went through almost all of books, one through nine, not in order. I, I didn't read them in order to start with, and I still read them out of order, listen to them out of order with the amazing Jefferson May's performances. Um, uh, but I really paid attention this time to the, you know, some good guy admirals that they have to rely on uh, when it comes to, you know, fighting the fight back here and in other situations. Um, and the many, you know, mustache twirling evil admirals, generals, political leaders, and so forth who are in with big corporations and all the things you'd expect. Um, uh, but the, sci the evil scientists and uh, the evil corporate leaders, with the exception of Duarte, um, you know, who, who, you know, because they decided to end this after six, as opposed to the nine books, you know, the big, uh, I don't want to call him bad guy, antagonist uh, um, uh, for both our good guys and the galaxy at large, it turns out in book seven, eight, and nine, is Duarte, who's the you know leader uh, emperor of uh, high console of the Martian um, traitors rebels who go to the Laconia system start their own empire use the proto molecule and uh, some uh, ancient alien stuff they find there to make extremely powerful ships and weapons and they come back to the solar system um, uh, and take it over very quickly there's almost no possibility of fighting back I mean they've gravitational uh, you know weapons things that rip apart time and space. Uh, even the combined forces of uh, Earth and Mars and um, uh, uh, the belt by Book 7, uh, while they're getting along much better, they're still recovering from what's happening here, or about to start be happening here. Um, uh, uh, 
and you know i mean they throw like hundreds of ships at like one or two laconian ships but with alien technology that's billions of years old and trillions of times more powerful there's no chance um but of course the weapons it turns out uh, they have no control over understanding of and both duarte himself uh the self-proclaimed emperor um, and the alien weapons and tools that they use all start backfiring um, and worse in causing local events to become galactic events to become possibly universe-ending events and books 7, 8, and 9 are awesome to read uh, just for the science ideas because while I still will always love books five and six the best, and therefore uh, you know, I adore se seasons five and six for doing such a great job in this, their interpretations, um, and where they go their own way, but also where they're so loyal, um, because five and six were the first ones I read, and I just fell in love immediately um, after having seen the first four seasons of the show. Um, and the Marco Inaros thing is just, you know, a, a revolutionary of, uh, from the belt, um, who's way too radical and way too genocidal and psychotic, you know, committing the partial genocide of the human race is something we've already dealt with on Earth. It makes sense it would happen on a bigger scale for different reasons, uh, more complex reasons, and just, you know, literally bigger reasons, the whole solar system and so forth. Um, uh, here's Monica tr transmitting the information. I guess she saw, this is so cool. Um... These three are so awesome in the, in the book. I mentioned how in book five, I'll get back to that last point, I mentioned how book five is the one and only book where the four main Rossi members, Alex, Amos, Naomi, Holden, all have chapters named after them and from their perspectives. It's only them, and it's equally divided. Um, it turned out for me that I love Alex one the best because it ends up being Alex and Bobby, and they're the ones on the, the high-flying military adventure trying to escape and save the Prime Minister of Mars, and just their relationship's my favorite thing through the books. Uh, but a close second are these three, um, both because of how interesting um, the dynamics on the base are and how relatively long it takes for Fred Johnson to understand and accept how deep the sabotage, espionage, um, and terrorism, and just takeover of the OPA from right under his, his buttocks <laughs> um, has already happened. Um, and as I said, uh, well, I think he lives this episode. I think he gets killed next episode. Um, he doesn't get killed to mid book six um, in the books. And uh, as I briefly mentioned, uh, here's Bull, who uh, actually on repeat readings of Bull, who's actually a character only in book three, but is in a, ma a major character in book three, where the, the behemoth, the, the, the big ship they stole from the Mormons, uh, they tried, the Belters trying to be the first ones out um, in their converted battleship out into the, into the slow zone through the rings uh, and the alien station that's there and everything the proto-molecule is open you got to go for the books for that and watch earlier seasons um, but uh, the ethical and political uh, and historical um, uh, anecdotes told through the mouths by the, the authors uh, who definitely wanted us to learn some history um, in books five and six, which I personally love um, as a history buff, especially when you get to apply it to future scenarios and see how some things change and many things really don't. They're just reframed and, and look different. Um, allow Holden and... Uh, and um, uh, and Fred Johnson, who, while both flawed in some very different and some very similar ways, in the end of both the series, of the six books um, that the series takes place in, um, 
and then even in the longer scope of all the way through the end of the book series of book nine of Fred's been dead a long time Holden is much older um, by the final book uh, but Fred's legacies and choices live on and mistakes as well and Holden's too and uh, the tri- the tr- uh, the triad of Fred Johnson Avasarala and Holden uh, you know end up over the course of the books being both the most important leaders crisis after crisis after crisis ones who are always at each other's throats but in the end actually want the same thing they just see the world differently um uh, from some angles um but once fred's gone avasarala really loses it even though they're supposedly you know antagonists uh, with him as a traitor earther now defending the belt against earth and making threats and having weapons and you know but when he dies you know she really loses it because she realizes how great he is and how much they need him in the cause and when avasarala dies uh not only holden but all the crews now spend a lot of time with her with avasarala um uh, to say the least, as, as we'll see in the season, in season six. Um, uh, one of the great joys, even if you've seen this uh, and love seasons five and six, uh, is reading book six, which is actually longer than book five and is from many people's perspectives, including tons of belters who are only major characters in that book but represent different views of the opposed um, uh, oppositions um, who, within the OPA, even people who support Marco, how diverse they are, uh, and the brilliance of book six. Um, in addition to getting, I think, the most different writing perspectives of any of the books i mean it's probably over a dozen it but also including holden and bobby and naomi and our main characters but also lots of belters and then michio pa who's actually drummer um or they made her a drummer in the series here's the beginning of naomi's torture adventure this is all i'm gonna say now because it's a good time for me to talk about big picture stuff these scenes uh but you should really watch them closely if you haven't um uh, because not only are they loyal and uh, just staging, uh, but also feel from the book um, and the sort of the people who are her captors but her friends versus the people who are the captors who are abusive, like her son, or who are horrific. Here she is hugging one of her friends, but he still like, ends up being a captor, and her decision to fake the suicide and and the sort of space torture porn thing is one of the great TV performances of all time, emotional performances. And in the book is also one of the great, especially from the perspective of two middle-aged men writing for someone as complicated as Naomi Nagata is equally painful in the book, um, but it's only because it's so realistic how it plays out once the, the balls, billiard balls are in motion. So I'm assuming you've watched this at least once or twice. This season gets great ratings from critics, great ratings from smart people, has a pretty relatively low rating of a 4.1 out of 5 on Amazon compared to all the other seasons, and it's totally the uh, Trumper mug um, assholes not wanting to see Naomi be Sandra Bullock <laughs> from Gravity. And while I didn't love Sandra Bullock in Gravity, there's really no context for her character, her story, and that. that was just purely aesthetic. We've now come to know Naomi so well, and you can just see on her face especially after season four, uh, you know, how much she's matured and gotten wise, but she has one more um, <laughs> near-death, horrific existential sets of crises, um, uh, and she's completely underestimated her ability to infiltrate this and get the ship to her son and get her son away from Marco. She's wrong about all of it, and then it just becomes about survival. It's totally realistic. It's written how it would happen how it would happen in her head just as a person 
with empathy, <laughs> reading from Naomi's perspective, but also just Naomi herself. Uh, again, another great reason to read seven, eight, and nine is Holden becomes a prisoner for a while, and so Naomi, um, and and uh, the head of the underground is Belter, and, and Belter, um, I'm sorry, Andromeda's lover, um, in book seven, when the Laconians come and wipe out, you know, all the fleets of the solar system and say we're, you know, going to be our, your galactic rulers uh, with our alien spaceships um, uh, that are bending space and time and causing people to black out uh, throughout the galaxy. Our weapons are so powerful, kind of thing. Um, yeah, she's forced to take over both the underground, uh, which she's hesitant to She never carries guns, and she hates terrorism, even though she used to be sort of an OP terrorist when she was really, really young. That's how she connected with Marco and then had Philip, and then the first trauma with Marco and Philip. Um, and actually, I mean, thinking about it, just watching a performance here from Dominique, it just, just gets better every season. The writing gets better, and she... As much as the writing improves for everyone, especially for her, she even moves on a higher curve than the writing. So by the time they get here and they're using the best material, in my opinion, from books five and six, um, uh, and just making it happen on screen with this phenomenal actress, um, uh, it's such a bold and brilliant performance because... Um, the, the confidence and wisdom on her face and her expression and how she's talking here. Now, this is her first bit of uncertainty um, already. Uh, but when she first came on and she's drinking with them and hugging them and thinking she can infiltrate and save her son and that Marco is not as horrible as Marco is, um, but that she would voluntarily go back to such a trauma. It was such a horrible trauma being with Marco and then having her son being held as, as blackmail against her, uh, you know, leaving him or doing anything he didn't want her to do. Um, uh, and then she had to flee, and even though she has an amazing education and she's the best engineer in the galaxy, I mean, she's like fucking Han Solo, but of engineering, um, and has the leadership gene, um, as I was getting to, and as you see in books 7, 8, and 9, her leadership gene is she has to run the underground and the navy, uh, and all the free peoples outside of Laconia, the Belters, humans, and Martians, and so forth, plus it's like aliens from billions of years ago who are attacking them, and then aliens from billions before that who are attacking the aliens from billions of years ago and us things got crazy in 789 and if you like big alien space opera stuff like ian banks or old school asimov arthur c Clarke, um uh, even a little bit and you love this series um uh, uh, in the characters, you owe it to yourself to to, to see Admiral Nagata. <laughs> she refuses to go by that name, uh, uh, but at one point she's in control of hundreds of ships and you know hundreds of thousands of, of, of underground fighters and resistors of various sorts across thirteen hundred systems. When Laconia thinks they're in charge, and Naomi's in charge, but she already thinks she's there without um. Uh, obviously, she doesn't know that as bad as this mark of genocide is about to be and going to be for Earth and everybody who's reliant on Earth, who which is everybody for a long time. And then, but when Laconia comes and starts um, angering the evil dark gods of the universe, as they say, um, you know, like fucking comic book shit, like fucking. Uh, you know, actually like Warhammer stuff, you know, like in, in the void or the warp, you know, oh, like just the pure, empty, nihilistic evil shit. Here's Cass Anvar acting kind of creepy, trying to flirt awkwardly, but just coming off as a total creep. He's hitting on this woman. 
I don't want to dwell anymore on Cass being a creep. Um, but while he he plays Alex to a T in the first couple seasons, by now, uh, knowing that he was in full creepazoid mode in real life, and I'm going to drop it after this, it's f- along with the writing with him and Bobby that isn't quite on point, uh, which we'll get to um, uh, a little bit later, um, because they become best buds and lifelong partners without realizing it, like almost immediately. Uh, in book five, and it lasts for many, 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 many years. Uh, and they spend the rest of their life together as platonic besties. Um, you can just see he's a creep, creep. Uh, and they got a woman who, to her credit, is doing a really good job of being kind of good and kind of bad at spy flirting and being a creep herself. So he's just being, you know, like this is just a creep playing off. This is a real creep acting like a creep playing off. A woman's playing like a creep. It doesn't happen like this in the book. I thought it did with the date, but actually I don't think there is any date. He actually talks directly to Duarte, uh, which is much more interesting um, because he doesn't realize sitting in front of him at this point in, in book five uh, where he is trying to get background information using his naval connections for Bobby and for himself and Holden and so forth. He's actually talking directly to Duarte, not realizing that they are mere days from fleeing Mars with a third of the fleet giving the belter advanced ships so that they can nuke Earth by the rest of the Martians who have the rest and the best of the stolen Martian ships they must have been planning for decades flee um, uh, uh, and a near-death burn to the Laconia system which they had scouted and knew was both habitable and had alien shipyards and technology it was all planned down Duarte was the guy Alex has no idea it makes him you know, it really shows the limitations of his perceptiveness because he's really confident in that meeting in the book when he talks to Duarte and Duarte plays like he's scared and he knows about these rogue elements, but um, he couldn't possibly be a part of it. And he's going to report to his admiral about it. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and then he sends Alex to a dead end to a guy who's murdered. And, and then they just have to flee the planet. They don't have long enough to think about it. Avasarala, Avasarala, of course, is the one who's been considering, um, uh, or I should say, who looks into Duarte among the other senior leaders who defect uh, from Mars uh, to look to the Laconia ex- exile run escape, whatever thing. Um, uh, and Navasarela um, actually puts it together after during retirement as her quote-unquote hobby. Uh, and when we revisit all this um, in uh, um, book seven, uh, which is the biggest time jump of probably close to 20 years, um, where, uh, I mean, you know who's on the Rosanante by the end of season six if you've seen this series. It's not just the main four. We also have Bobby, who we knew from the beginning was destined to be there, and the one who you don't expect in either the books or the show is Alex getting a chance to save Clarissa Mao from her horrible prison, um, who, by law and justice and most ethics and morality, should still be in prison even during the apocalypse. But when you get to know Clarissa through Amos uh, and through Naomi, who understands Amos innately, um, uh, and through Clarissa's own thoughts, um, uh, is actually the exactly the kind of person who it, it takes almost no time in prison for her to realize how horrible she's she was, and she's going to devote the rest of her life being recklessly heroic like the rest of the crew, but even more so, um, trying to, you know, as they say, you know, she broke the, the Rossi once um, in, in, in season three with the behemoth stuff going out to the ring gates when she sabotages and tries to kill Holden in frame him and so forth, but uh, 
you know and so she spends the next 20 years as a member of the Rossi crew trying to earn Holden's um uh loyal not loyalty but um you know just treat her um as a as as, you know not the horrible murderous wanting to kill him person that she was but the the person that she is now um who is as vicious of a killer as ever but now she's learned the amos method of being around righteous people as amos talks about and so he can aim that gun of his and his anger and his violence towards the bad guys because the righteous people came with naomi and holden and alex have them aim in the right way and that's why him and clarissa are soulmates in, in their own way um bobby and alex are true heroes they're true um uh, as we sort of see here but you really get in the books um uh, are true patriots of Mars. We don't have any major Belter characters, um, um, and we definitely don't have any Earth characters, even Amasarla, uh, who are as truly patriotic to the core and the bone, um, just instinctively, um, as, uh, uh, there's Ashford, right, so, you know, by necessity, I just to jump back to the show real quick, so I've been talking big picture stuff and where this is leading into the later books, oh, look at this shot of Drummer, um, uh, uh, but anyways, um, uh, you know, by the time Clarissa, spoiler alert, dies eventually because, you know, her implants that give her superpowers, every time she uses it, it poisons her body, and eventually she needs to save everybody, and it's the last time she can do it. Um, I won't say when. She does get to be part of the crew, though, for a long time during that time jump, and so it's the main four of the of the Rosie f- that we have from the beginning, and then Bobby and Clarissa, so it's the six, and Amasarala is sort of the unofficial sevens. Um, uh, but Drummer becomes the head of the, what they call the trade union, um, who becomes, who's does what Fred Johnson was trying to set up, which is having Belters be in charge um, uh, economically, if nothing else, making sure the gate traffic is running well, because, you know, we find out here um, and over and over again that when you have too many ships that are too big and moving too fast through gates at the same time, they just tend to disappear. Um, And uh, the reader knows that they die. Uh, The the writers do a good job of making... um, the main characters who are all pretty smart assume death but skeptical because there's no way they can't tell it's like is there heaven after death like, we can't prove it because we're dead already um so the characters are never 100 percent sure that they're dead or if they're like with thanos and the infinity stones you know beaming to some other dimension temporarily uh it's made pretty clear to the reader that it is death um, and the show actually does it too at, from the end of season four when we see Sovater uh, and his woman, uh, his female, I'm sorry, um, his, the young woman who plays his XO right before they jump to Laconia. Uh, Sovater, who's one of Duarte's lead general thugs, who's uh, abandoning and, and tra- a traitor to Mars like him as part of this new Laconian experiment, uh, they fade out and it's pretty clear that they die in the books and I think in the show. Back to the traitor thing. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how just wonderful the dialogue is in this book in particular, um, because, and I want to point out, um, I'm sorry, leaving trailing thoughts, um, but I want to point out that while the show had six seasons, um, and so now we're, uh, you know, 
in the first part of the second to last season, although it's really, uh, we're really in the final stretch because season six is only six episodes. It's really a, a final season and a half. That's five dash six. I don't even know how I'm going to brand this. Um, there's a bunch of dead people. There's Bull. Um, oh, and Bull's reminding me um, to get back to the thing I was talking about, about the general and admiral character. Um, here's the two creeps being creeps. <laughs> um, but when we get back to Avasarala uh, and her admiral friend, I'll talk about um, the, the, the problems that uh, the writers themselves in the books avoid, almost have no, other than like Alex's conversation with Duarte, which is completely Duarte throwing Alex off the trail because he knows exactly who Alex is and who Holton is and so forth. And they're just about to make their secret um, giant uh, betrayal escape from Mars to Laconia with him at the lead. So um, it's interesting both at the time of that interaction and it's definitely in hindsight. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Jules Pierre Mao, obviously, you know, father of, of Julie, who's so important in, in one and in two and everything with the protomolecule, and of course, Clarissa, who becomes even more important than Julie, just in terms of the number of books and the, her actual relationship and part and being part of the crew of the Rossi, um, is, um, the Mao family so interesting, um, Avasarala and her family so interesting. They know how to do the main political and sort of corporate characters, but they don't know the military stuff. Now, when military things are going down and there's two, three, four-way battles and people don't know who's on whose side and the UN shooting UN with Mars and the Rosie's shooting, but then there's other Mars and then the Belters come, I mean, they totally know how to do that fast stuff. Uh, where there's uh, both tight beams and wide broadcasts in between all the parties and, and both negotiations and threats are happening at light speed uh, while shooting is, is sporadically going on and off to various levels. I mean, they do it better than anyone. I mean, it's, it's the best military sci-fi out there, but when you really look at the military characters, not the Alex's and the Bombies or even the Holden's, but I'm talking about the admirals and the generals, uh, James A. Corey, uh, who is actually Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, uh, who go by James A. Corey, um, uh, Ty and um, Ty Frank and Abraham get around it by just not really dealing with it. They give a couple quirky personality traits um, to the good guys, like Souther. Souther, so this guy that is with Avasarala, uh, if we see it again in this episode, um, should be Souther. Um, who I think is a, a black or a person of color, it doesn't matter at this point, um, uh, but, but he's sort of a middle-aged black um, gay, sort of talks in a high voice, um, but the fact that he gay talks in a high voice, but then you hear how in command and brilliant he is as a military leader, and how he responds to and obeys Avasarala, and they're on the same wavelength, it's just a contrast with... Uh, uh, you know, uh, throwing off your expectations that, oh, he's going to be weak and effectual because how, how he talks and, you know, his sexual preferences, not totally the other way. He's totally the good guy, and he's he's with Avasara a lot for as long as he's around and she's around. Uh, but the bad guy, uh, admirals and generals, and even, um, like, the leaders that precede um, Avasarla's rise to number three, then number two, then number one. Um, are, they just don't spend that much time. I mean, it's usually through feeds or to, or like Avasarla is watching a news feed of the Secretary General dance around the issue and cover up for people, and then she interprets it for us. And because she's so great, um, Avasarla is both in character and in the book in here with with Share Agdashlu. You know, that's the way to do it: is have the characters you know and love and do actually do the exposition. Even 
even if it's them listening to it and then expanding on it to you, the reader, the watcher, etc. and so forth. Um, this this fight here does not happen um, uh, staging-wise like this. Bobby is already getting the shit kicked out of her, and they freak out when they see Alex. Um, this is before he agrees to help her, actually, um, in the book, not after, um, as he's already done. Uh, he's actually coming to tell Bobby he doesn't want to help her because his life's too complicated. Um, and he comes to Bobby's apartment, and she's almost dead. He just, as he does here, he's you know we know Alex is a pilot and a fighter. He does just enough so that Bobby can fucking kill these motherfuckers. Um, but she gets shot twice. Um, of course, she survives, and she's already doing marine training like three days later and going on ten G burns. But at the time, it's kind of scary because you think Alex. If, if Bobby doesn't survive, Alex is done. Um, uh, it doesn't matter, though. It, the, the feeling is exactly the same, uh, other than this actually turns into a scary emergency situation where Bobby goes out uh, cold from the gunshots, and he rides the ambulance with her to the hospital, and that's when, that's when their platonic best friendship completely flips from they've already liked each other from the beginning just being fellow martians having similar sense of humor and being different enough personality wise to balance uh, uh what's different and, and hone in on the commonalities and so forth like all best friendships forget about gender whatever it doesn't matter they're soulmate they're platonic soulmates um but without it becoming brotherly and sisterly um because uh, they're chosen family, and they both don't really love their actual families. Um, it's just a sort of, uh, you know, opens the door to, you know, not every male-female platonic friendship has to be like a brother-sister thing. It can just be, like, she's his best man in his second marriage that goes awry, as we learn in book seven and so forth. She's his dude, and he's her dude. Um, and it's my favorite thing about the books. Um, but anyways, the feel of this, of you just think Alex is going to get crushed. Uh, Bobby saves the day with a little help distraction from Alex, and he goes to the hospital. That's what flips it. And Alex's head as a writing to the hospital. And even though he has a reader, you're going, there's no way Bobby, the Martian Marine, the biggest person, you know, two meters tall, so strong, so beautiful, so, you know, seemingly invincible, is, is going to go down. He's, you know... Uh, like a close friend even though they're just becoming close friends he has the reaction of a close friend of you know it's more horrific than things that he's seen that objectively people dying vomit zombies and so forth are much worse but that moment seeing bobby out in the ambulance uh, as they're doing their you know uh, er ride to the hospital or whatever is like the scariest thing ever and then they have their adventure together uh, in the Razorback, right in the space, uh, racing pinnace um, across the solar system to do all sorts of stuff, including distracts, uh, um, and eventually save the Prime Minister of Mars, which they cut out of this. We'll get back to that later, if that was a good decision or not. The key part was just to get him and Bobby and his ship together, and so they have, you know, as they're burning G's and hoping not to die and get to the good guys before the bad guys' missiles get them, they have tons of time to just sit in the tiny little uh, racing pinnace and, you know, and do their dyadic encounter, as, as we used to say at camp, you know, light a candle and, and bear their souls. Um, and, uh, 
it happens very quickly, not only because they're in a tight space, they're spending time together, and they're sort of meant for each other. Uh, and soulmates like Amos and, and Clarissa end up being meant for each other, and they can just sort of feel it on a, a gut level. I mean, Clarissa and Amos almost never actually talk. Um, theirs is like a spiritual connection uh, of just understanding, or neither of them really have a lot to say, uh, and are disturbed as hell, um, but just give each other comfort being there. And, and they spend almost all their time together in the machine shop fixing stuff. You know, Clarissa's always trying to fix the Rosie f for the rest of her life. Once she gets a reprieve from jail at the end of the season and becomes part of the crew, um, against Holden's better judgment, she's always trying to fix the Rosie. And it makes her, well, Naomi's the smartest engineer ever. Now that they've got Naomi, but then also Amos, who's a grease monkey, or, you know, an, an assistant engineer, uh, and Clarissa, um, who's brilliant in her own mind because of, well, she's just brilliant in general, got a great education. And then, of course, her secondary education of learning to be a terrorist involved learning to be an engineer as well. Learning how to take apart ship, complicated ships, putting them back together, <laughs> very related skills. And so, um, yeah, they talk about how she's, you know, in her mind, whether she's aware or not, uh, trying to fix the Rosie even when it's not broken. Uh, but but her, her extreme neurosis and having backups to the backups to the backups to the ship that she now, you know, loves in the later books that she earlier tried to destroy and kill its crew before she realized how very wrong she was with the behemoth storyline um uh, and her supposed revenge against uh, or attempted revenge against holden which goes totally the other way holden ends up becoming the me the mechanic of of her re-engineering of herself uh which both of them realize uh, much much later um uh, but uh this Belter stuff is awesome. I mean, there's no question that Karajia's drummer was increasingly people's favorite character in the star, even before this. But, you know, just like... Oh, and to tie back to Thomas Jane, I mean, all the Belters are great. I'm just watching this now. is spectacular. I mean, she was a Canadian theater and TV star, and everyone knew that she was a thing, and they just early on just realized they were going to combine uh michio who's i think this is who's playing yeah this is actually michio pa um by name um in uh, in the books it's sort of confusing who 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 Gee as drummer is playing in seasons five and six is just michio pa by name in the books but instead they decide to uh combine Fred Johnson's um, most trusted and number two drummer on Tycho Station who talks and acts a lot like this drummer um, and combine her with Michio Pa, the former Fred Johnson uh, a loyalist who turned into a pirate and enemy of Fred Johnson who then defected to Marco but very quickly realizes another delicious thing about book six is you see Michio Pa slash drummer realize almost immediately and they captured here in feeling uh, realize almost immediately how wrong Marco is. I mean, she's realizing it before the rocks even hit Earth. Um, in the books, uh, you know, Michio Pa um, has a ton of chapters in book six from her perspective. Um, uh, and, uh, oh, right, they used the death of Ashford. Uh, yeah, Ashford is never reclaimed. He's just the horrible, psychotic captain of the behemoth who almost kills everybody in, in book three, um, Abaddon's Gate. Um, but because you had David Strathairn and, and the just phenomenal, maybe best side story ever in a science fiction genre show of just her uh, 
you know, who had loved and then hated and then was in charge with and then became friends with and sort of spiritual bonded it with um, with David Strathairn. Um, uh, character, they, they make it personal here. Michio, it's personal because I mean Marco. As soon as she starts showing distent, starts blowing up her ships who had just been helping him, and she was on the inner council. But what's weird about Book Six is starting with Michio Pa, um, who's reformed as drummer um, here, um, uh, as joining Marco by default, realizing in both cases uh, very quickly how how off he is. Uh, but Michio Pa does not convert away from Marco um, and back ultimately to who she claims she hates Fred Holden, who she claims she should hate, I'm sorry, Fred Johnson, and who she actually does like, um, and who likes her and James Holden, which is very important. I mean, Holden's the reason they're able to lock in Pa as straight opposition to um, uh, Marco, and not just pulling themselves out of the game completely, but actively helping the fight back against Marco after she was in the inner council. And it happens really fast, but it's not because she sees the devastation of Earth, and it's important to Michio's character and to the Belters, who have, especially the Belters, even the powerful ones who are well-traveled, like Michio Pan, drummer, who haven't spent time on Earth, who don't know a lot of Earthers, like Naomi, they don't feel what happened on Earth. It's just numbers, and a lot of Earthers that they hate anyways. Here's Philip. These two are amazing together. This is the main reason to argue that uh, the Naomi stuff is... Um, it's not better, but it's better served in this medium than in the book. Um, we get a lot of chapters from Philip's perspective in book six, um, and a lot of interactions between these two in book five. Uh, from Naomi's perspective... But these actors just do everything with their faces and, and with their actions and their words and their motions, how the spirals out of control, um, and how she ends up saving her son without knowing that he's either saved or even alive. I mean, the whole thing's so tragic. Uh, this young actor, I, I can't say enough of um, enough about, and uh, you know, as I said, Dominique just gets better scene to scene. Um, literally, uh, from the very first scene of the show till now. I mean, now she's, you know, putting in a word-level work, which the material called for, and uh, she stepped up to it. This translates phenomenally in a show like The Expanse, because it's a lot of tense human relationships, like we would get with Battlestar, but it's also then just doing the Sandra Bullock gravity thing, where she's just physically trying to survive and not die in space, contact her friends, and you know, not get them blown up by hidden terrorists, bo uh, uh, planted bombs and so forth. And the Rosinante is used to communicate to them, but then her communication gets interrupted. And, uh, you know, so um, I guess what I'm saying is, in the book, when you're reading um, these long conversations with her son and then Marco, it gets increasingly just horrifying. And, he, and his son hits her, and, and, and the verbal abuse is worse. Marco is just a monster, obviously, and then she sees what he does to Earth. Um, uh, and then and then in the book it's a lot of just you're in Naomi's head during her chapter because who's she gonna talk to uh, it's her figuring out the problem she's the best engineer ever and she's you know rejected herself into a vacuum and then into an unlivable ship and she should be dead the whole time oh, and she somehow finds a way to survive long, just long enough for them to get her she's just that brilliant and even though she kind of wants to die after going through this trauma again many years later 
or she now has to deal with monster uh, uh, Marco, who's even more of a monster, and now her son, who's grown up, and a mirror of monster Marco, worse in some ways, although he's also uh, has potential for redemption that she doesn't quite see. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to see if she had seen a spark of Philip's re- possible redemption. Um, in the books, whether she would have not tried the fake suicide thing to just get away and give up on him. Um, but they do a great job in the book of flipping Philip as a reader from thinking that he's irreconcilable, um, traumatized uh, youth by his dad and, and the genocidal work he's being called to do as a child, basically, and the killing, straight up killing. Um, uh, but they t- they have again with a long book and a lot from Philip's perspective uh, and him, him murdering someone and getting away with it only because you know his dad's the head of the fucking you know free navy the ruling military branch of the OPA at that point otherwise we go to jail or just get airlocked for just murdering someone on a space station for no particular reason um, and that begins his um, redemption process. She never gets to find out. She thinks Philip dies. Um, and uh, uh, I don't think it's an understatement to say that as sad as she is that her son dies, if she had a sniff that he had been working even a tiny bit towards getting better, um, redeeming himself, not relying on other people to do it for him, even if it ended up with him dying because of war's war, because there's a war on, it wouldn't have been a relief. He'd still be dead. Obviously, the best solution would be he gets redeemed and they get reunited. Book leaves open, I'll say, the series, at the end of the series. It's possible at some point before Naomi's final death, whenever that happens, post-series, uh, that they find each other. I like to think that they do. Um, but she thinks he's dead for sure. Here it is. Here it is, her son turning on her, her one good buddy turning on her. Um, she ends up having to kill him as part of getting out of the airlock and selling her suicide, and that, that torments her, but he leaves her no choice. Um, um, but, uh, j- yeah, t- just to wrap this up, because of the, the performances of those two leads, um, the young man who plays um, Philip um, and, uh, and uh, Dominique Tipper um, as Naomi Nagata, um, it's actually more effective, definitely the relationship part with her and Philip and some with Marco uh, on, on screen uh, with, with the intensity, uh, but, but extreme nuance of, of the characters. Here it is, Marco Naras. Yep, she was right. She was right the whole time about Marco. She was right about the Belters. But she knows they're responsible, but it doesn't change that they still need to stop them. I mean, she sees the whole thing. She sees the whole thing from the beginning of the books. Um, and a few times she's really, really wrong over the course of the first couple books, first couple seasons. Now she, she gets it, but now she, the young buck, um, young woman who's, who beat her in the election for secretary general uh, won't take her calls <laughs> and then dies. Uh, and so it's complicated. Uh, but he says, right, he says, if you were in charge and came to this theory, they would laugh you out of office. They persisted. You would reassign them. All right. He's claiming that she has the knowledge and the secretary general, um, whose name is Gao, I believe, Julie Gao, or just Gao, um, uh, you know, just thinks Avicerala is crazy and trying to get attention and making up conspiracy theories. He's completely wrong. She's much older, much wiser. Um, and 
so the fact that he decides to, you know, give up the responsibility of leadership and just become a grunt at the end on the ground to fight the fucking skinnies because fuck the belter and fuck the skinnies. Um, he's, all right, they're already starting to sell it here. It's not that it makes no sense, but this goes back to the earlier point I want to get to uh, because the rocks are about to launch. Um, and I haven't recorded the intro yet. I want to do a little bit and maybe I'll do a follow-up or something about just the masterful directed performance of Thomas Jane. This reminds me of the minimalist perfection of sort of neo-western movies that you know this show is definitely drawing from westerns both modern and old and things like alien which don't seem like westerns but the alien movies are very very western firefly Battlestar, etc um but also the old westerns the shootouts the indians versus the europeans i mean we get with the belters and the arthurs the whole thing um uh, but there's just a minimalist perfection on how this is uh, shot um, where an above-average but not amazing script from an incredible series of chapters in the book that are among the best chapters in the best book of science fiction of all time, one of them, they do a good job of translating here, um, but this was the episode where I saw that the important things that they could make happen on screen with a big but limited budget in a decent amount of time but so limited compared to a 700-page book, I began to realize that the big ones they were going to pull off, it was probably going to be really good and loyal in the important ways. And when they couldn't, they would do something based on the internal logic of the show that they'd set up between the characters in the scenario and so forth. And it hits on all cylinders, which is why this has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and real critics or just real movie and film TV people know how brilliant of achievement this season is even if they've never read a page of the expanse it's even more if you have even if you prefer the books like me it makes you appreciate it even more there it is even our dreams are small is this marco's speech if marco gives a speech here before the rocks like they flipped the fight with bobby and alex um in time this is obviously a much bigger one here come the rocks at earth but giving to thomas jane who has directed but for this to be the episode, you know, there's the hinge of the entire series, which, you know, in the series is happening towards the end and is leading towards you know, the final season, season and a half, Marco and Naros battle, um, or struggle, I should say. It's great having just this homeless guy, but with his, his futuristic goggles, which are probably outdated, but futuristic to us, always gotta love that, um, to him to see it and to hit, hit the water and that earth is actually more scary because you know it, it just proves how powerful giant fast rocks that hit earth are it doesn't matter where they hit enough mass and enough speed and enough of them you get apocalypse that's what we're gonna see here boom and they just show it i mean thomas jane didn't have to worry about that last shot but all the character stuff that i've been praising the whole time that was amazing 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 work all the character stuff that i've been praising the whole time is all thomas jane and you know if you can take all the terrible things we learned about Cass anvar as a human being uh before, right before this season came out which is why they somewhat minimize him somewhat reframe him uh and then of course you know kill him uh, in in post-production with cgi uh that wasn't supposed to happen at the end of the season he's not even in six uh even though again once more i'll say it in the books he's my favorite with bobby both separate and together 
and it goes beyond this. Uh, they had to get rid of Cass. He, he, what he was doing um, to uh, and around women uh, digitally and in person, uh, not on this show, but in many other places, is just horrific, and he'll never get an acting job again. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, in hindsight, while he does a great Alex for the first half of season one, it's not even written like Alex in the book. Um, uh, when you go back to it, uh, he's never as scared or as weird or as creepy or as deluded. He's not the smartest, but he knows he's not. He knows he's the pilot, but he's also, he's the mother hen, as, as Naomi comments later. He's the mother hen. He's the one that keeps them smiling whenever tensions come up on the ship. He's the, he's, he's the mom with Naomi, but because of her responsibilities of managing so many things, including James Holden, which is a whole management job in itself, um, uh, but because Alex is just purely a pilot and everyone says, or I should say both Naomi and Holden are his boss, he just has to fly and his other duty is to, you know, cook some good meals, make sure the crew gets along compliments Bobby as their ultimate warrior that they didn't know that they needed, that they end up needing really badly here and forward, having Bobby permanently on the Rosalante. They probably should have realized it already, um, uh, but they do realize it, and uh, the universe certainly realizes it on the galaxy. Um, uh, but uh, just to leave that to the final thought, a masterful job of directing by, uh, by Jane. Um, I won't get to talk about him again because he doesn't direct another episode, um, but you have to keep in mind in the book, this is, this happens in, so if this happens in the third episode of season five, so we have most of season five and the short season six left after this, so this is happening, you know, the final third quarter of the series, it happens directly in the middle of book five, which is directly in the middle of nine books, so the Marco throwing rocks at Earth, committing genocide, causing genocide of half of the human race on Earth, at least, it seems like, in the long run, and long-term effects all across the system, and of course, allowing for the rogue Martians, aka Laconians, to come back and take over. I mean, everything horrible that happens now and later is all Marco's fault and the people who follow him, and that's why Michio Pato just to finish that thought off, um, who was replaced by a drummer here in her role, turns from Marco. She's not horrified by the genocide of, I mean, maybe she's horrified by the genocide of people, but she's more horrified by Marco's uh, almost immediate um, and and completely dissociated um, in thinking that he's being smart and turning his back on his own people as a strategic move, where one of the first thing Marco does after they bombed Earth and everyone's sort of waiting to see what the next part of the war is, is Ceres Station, which is such an important culture station, which they took from the Earthers, um, uh, had been trying to take for so long. Anderson Dawes, who we've seen, is such an important character, head of Ceres Station. Philip commits his murder on Ceres, and that's where, you know, he only gets off the station because his dad's Margo. I mean, Ceres is so important, both in the present and the story, but throughout the history of the belt, Ceres Station. And Marco immediately, without consulting his economists, his political advisors, and just the people on his team, like Michio Pan and so forth, decide unilaterally that they're going to act like the Afghanis in, in, in medieval history, where they just strip, the like like they would strip the city and run into the hills in the old days, right? Or so the legends say. Marco strips Ceres of anything valuable, including food supplies, to take for them, and he's going to go into the black, because he knows, and he's right, that for each belt at this point, 
because of what's happened to Earth, it's actually making the good Belters, the good Martians, and the good Earthers, you know, a million times more dependent even than they'd been, I mean, now it's life or death daily for all three sides because of the repercussions of the Earth genocide and the rocks being thrown. Um, And despite... um, uh, um, all, uh, or so because all that, he, he, he's smart enough to know that um, by stripping the stations um, and, and even some of the civilian ships, um, not unlike Michelle Forbes as um, an awesome uh, Pegasus arc of Battlestar Season 2, um, Admiral Kane, or uh, she just, whenever she finds civilian ships, unlike Adama and Roslyn, who's trying to save the civilian ships and the human race, she just strips them for parts and leaves the civilians because she just wants revenge and to win the war that has no end and it's going to just result in death, Marco being both an idealist, but also, as Fred points out, well before the rocks even hit, uh, I'm sorry, after after they figure out it's Marco, Fred Johnson um, puts together almost immediately there's someone behind Marco. They know it because of the Martian ships. Uh, that has to be someone from Mars. Um, uh, and they're right, Duarte and the, and the Mars traders are the ones who give Marco the ships and the weapons to do what he does. Um... Uh, but they're also, you know, giving him railguns to defend the station um, inside the slow zone uh, where all the ring gates are to 1300 systems, but also probably giving him military advice. Um, and But Marco, thinking everything comes from him, win, loss, or otherwise, as Naomi always points out, you know, I mean, the, the whole universe could be stacked up of dead bodies with only Marco at the top, and he would find a way to declare victory for not only himself, but all of humanity. I mean, that, he's just that much of a psychopath, but also limited thinker. Fred Johnson can put that together immediately. There's at least w- one group or one handler behind Marco, and he's just the pretty, um, the horrific but pretty-faced uh, figurehead uh, that he appears to be who's just really good at giving speeches and at least temporarily getting people on his side but when he immediately as his first move as now the sort of political leader post um uh, uh sending the rocks to earth and, and killing 15 billion people um has to make political uh, decisions that are related to the military decisions with the when he calls the free navy the new opa um the first thing he does is strip one of their most important stations of not just their military assets, but their, like, you know, scrap metal, food, water. Because he knows that uh, that in order to maintain moral high ground and keep the good OP on the side, and just because they're more humane than him, that, uh, that even someone as ruthless seeming as Avasarala would immediately step in, especially to a station like Ceres that they had co-controlled for a long time with the Pelters. It was a big deal for the Pelters to take over Ceres themselves. Um, and so when Avasarala, when Avasarala decided to take back Ceres militarily as their first move, and then even before she hears about Marco stripping it, but then she hears it. She knows that she's she and the Earthers, and who's left with the Martians, and who's left with the good OPA together. But mostly the Earthers are going to have to feed and take care of, of those people in order to retain a high ground. Marco can't see that by doing stuff like that. Each time he abandons a station, strips a station, he loses almost everyone on that station's <laughs> loyalty. Um, I mean, best case scenario, people heavily questioning even the most loyal people who have already doubting him like Michio Pa in his inner circle leave immediately because they see, you know, 
I mean, this is the first thing he's doing is, is stripping the civilians who were supposed to be feeding as our first priority. I mean, you know, they think Marco bombed. Or I'll wrap this up, but it's you know, it, there's so much they do get in, but there's so much you got to know the book for. But you know, they see the attack on Earth as buying time to gain independence for the belt. So even Marco's initial speech about how they control everything outside the atmosphere of Mars and Earth, um, meaning the in his mind, he thinks now the Belters control all of the universe other than on the surface of Mars and Earth. But of course, half of Mars has now fled um, in terms of power and maybe a third of its people with all their ships and the terraforming project's dead and people are already leaving Mars to go to the other habitable planets you know, fuck Mars without, you know, I mean, why can't I have a sun and grass? Uh, you know, let's get out of here and go to the outer systems. And now Earth's bombed. You know, I mean, he he, he sees this um, as just a long war. Uh, he's going to defeat them and do what the Laconians end up at least briefly doing in Book 7, 8, and 9 in establishing a galactic empire, not just domination over their previous oppressors or, or whatever uh, in Mars and Earth, uh, in Marco's case. Um, the people around him are mostly very smart, um, but it all happens so fast and it's so dramatic and he's so charismatic that the 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 older, wiser people like Michiopa and her polyamorous crew and her fleet of ships and and the older economists and politicians like Anderson Dawes and um, that are around him advising him has the right people are all telling him not to do this. We need to secure our own people's loyalty. Uh, you know, we we need hearts and minds, but we also need to feed them. Um, and they're not going to stay with us just because we're belters. He can't see that, and so he loses. You know, one of his top five um, closest advisors in Michipa immediately. He loses the any respect or loyalty he might have gotten off series, plus the strategic location of it. And now it's back in Earth's hands, which they need so badly because they just need workers and, and they need work happening on other places other than Earth. So now they got series back. He, they didn't even have to fight him for it. He thinks he has a big victory because now they've got these fancy Martian ships filled with the stuff they stole from their own civilians. He, but he can't tell he's already lost it. And um, uh, my final two points I'll make, and I'll let you guys go. Um, and uh, I'm going to take a break and, and, and process it. It really is, you know, I may have a preference with books for certain things, but when you see certain dramatic parts of it come to life, like the rocks hitting Earth, even just at the very end here, and then knowing the terribleness that's coming, uh, it really hits you in the gut, especially with the, the performances and, and Thomas Jane's direction, which I want to praise one final time here. Um, uh, but... Uh, um, uh, you know, Mar Markle's already losing his own people before the war even starts. Um, and, uh, you know, it's only because of the advanced Mars technology and because, you know, he did buy them a ton of time to try and actually put up a military effort against Mars and Earth and the good OPA, the Fred Johnson OPA, um, by glassing Earth, <laughs> you know, after destroying Earth. Um, but the people around him... Uh, we're thinking they were buying time so they could consolidate what they have, consolidate people's loyalty, get back to work, make sure they're fed, and supplies and, and taxation. You know, they're being heavily taxed by Earth and Mars. Uh, it's all their Earth and Mars fault. I mean, it's totally the proletariat rising up and Marco's tapping into it and he believes that what he's doing is helping the proletariat. But the right thing to do is what Michio Pa um, um, or a drummer here wanted to do, which is, okay, we we just killed a whole bunch of Earthers and sent Earth back like 300 years. That's pretty horrific, but maybe we did need to buy that much time because the, the, the 
you know, ginormous power differential between them and us. Now we can consolidate the OPA and make the outer planets independent and, if not wealthy, at least live longer than 50 fucking years compared to the 150 on Earth and Mars um, and have a chance of living, like, decent lives, you know, with things like healthcare and, you know, law and so forth, um, uh, 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 as well as being fed and employed. Um, and then we can worry about maybe, you know, continuing to fight a war or, or, or whatever. No, he immediately goes into full-on global, collect, uh, global, not like the Earth, but global, like, you know, the whole system, war mode. Um, he thinks they need to, to, to win the war, um, even though he's already said that they've won the war in the way that they ha- they've had, if you just listen to the people around him. And so what's great about the book is, uh, in book six... And they don't get a chance to do in season six here, and I guess I'll save the rest for when we get to season six, is because they only had a handful of episodes left and they wanted to keep the momentum and have a huge military conflict to end this, you know, amazing military sci-fi show, uh, which was the right call. A lot of the political stuff, but especially getting into the minds of just average OPAers who are Marco supporters but are having doubts for various reasons, you know, it just it leaves a lot out. Um, it leaves it to your imagination, sure, but when you read the book, you realize that the brilliant move in the book is making Pa and the Belters who support him start turning on him. Um, and it cascades almost immediately. And you can see from the beginning um, in book six that while the actual military fights and, and tactics and strategies they're going to need to take back the stations, but eventually take back Medina Station and the alien station inside the ring gate, in the slow zone, which is the center of everything uh, and the ultimate source of Marco's power because he can just shut down the gates to the 1300 solar systems that had been opened and have a human colonists now um that's going to still be really really hard but because of his megalomania and people converting from him almost immediately you know even though they need to smooth out the ancient uh, rivalries and hatreds like like you know michio and fred and so forth acting like children uh, even though they're on the same side now don't want to admit it you know the pirate and the traitor u.s colonel who's now helping belters um the path is clear because they can win some military battles, lose some, but as long as they're moving hearts and minds, especially, including especially the Belters, um, uh, to at least not want to help Marco. Um, I mean, there's a series of surrenders, uh, uh, you know, as the war goes on and it turns against Marco because of his own stupidity and terrible leadership. Uh, there's a series of surrenders of ships and leaders and stations, but, you know, they always have to frame it and knowing they're being listened to with propaganda and so forth, like it's against their will and they still support Marco and the Free Navy, but, like, you can just tell he's losing everybody. Um, and so uh, the book actually uh, becomes not a giant war book, uh, even though it has some great war scenes and some great battles, uh, military stuff in book six, Babylon's Ashes. Um, uh, but it's actually a book about getting into as many people's brains around the solar system as possible and trying to think about what's going to happen after. Because, you know, even if Marco wasn't such a terrible leader, in the end, even Mars losing their their forces to Laconia, I mean, having half their military defect, essentially, and their terraforming project dead, and people just leaving Mars, and even with 15 billion people dead on Earth, they still have more ships, and they still have more stuff. Um, and 
so while they win the war in a matter of months or maybe a year or two, as opposed to many years, if if Marco had been a real great political war leader, as opposed to a shitty one, um, you know, they're never going to quote unquote win in the end. Um, and only because of the intervention of James Holden and his relationship and love for the Belters, Fred's death, his relationship with Michio Pa, Naomi, of course, who, you know, he sees everything good in the world through Naomi, and she represents everything good about the Belton humanity, and, you know, Holden, like Amos, is essentially a Belter ideologically from the beginning of the series, but certainly by now. Um, only because of him and uh, some um, Belters who, you know, at least begrudgingly admit that while they hate Holden's pretentious, arrogant, self-righteous, hippie bullshit or whatever, that he's right and Marco's so wrong, um, it's only because of, of a few things like that that it doesn't immediately go back to not only Earth dominating the belt uh, uh, again, it, but even worse this time because now the belt's responsible for the genocide on top of just normal proletarian oppression. I mean, could have gone so much worse. Um, it ends up in a trade union where, where the belt actually does finally get empowered. Um, and whether Marco killing half of the human race to achieve that, even though it happens in totally not the way he wanted, expected, thought, or at, hoped or desired, it does actually happen. Um, and you know, the writers do the right thing in talking about how James, um, through Holden, as this is going on, uh, because, again, Six is a bunch of really cool military ventures, um, and inside looks at stations and ships and stuff, and people we haven't seen or heard from before, it's mostly going inside the minds of the character. You know, Alex has a non-marriage but very romantic relationship with a belter um, during wartime, and Amos and Clarissa start their spiritual bond, and uh, mostly Holden is just tormented because he, you know, as, he's, as he reminds the reader, um, um, but also the people in the story, because he's Holden and can, can't tell a lie and his heart's always in the right place, even if you fucking hate how it's coming out of his fucking fat mouth, he's right when he says, um, or I should say, he's constantly saying that Marco's right in the big picture, that the Belters, I'm not going to say, you can't never want to say they had no choice in the matter. They certainly had a choice to not kill half of Earth and half of the human race, or, or you know, in doing so. But, but the fact that extreme action... Um, uh, and extreme factions uh, would make a, a very bold move like this after how horrific their lives have been serving as almost slaves to earth and heavy taxation and so forth is that Marco's ultimately right and it's made even worse and he's especially right because now that all these gates are open uh, belters can get used to gravity and so some belters are actually you know g going to planets that have you know not heavy gravity because they're used to zero g or very low g up in this their stations and spinning rings and so forth but you know like moons and stuff where, where they can do exercises and actually live and have an atmosphere or at least to be on solid ground and, and maybe air and sun and water and all these things they've never experienced before um but certainly the Earthers and the Martians, who, while enslaving them, uh, you know, in all but name, economically, were, were lying on the Belters, now you go from a bunch of outer planets, moons, and asteroids that have a lot of great shit on them, <laughs> minerals, rocks, water, etc., um, to 1,300 systems that all have habitable planets, 
um, and have the most important thing, which is the habitable planets with arable land where they can grow food, spread around, have freedom, get away from overcrowded Earth, failing Mars, um, and even start completely fresh as, as a belter going to a planet, as we see in, in book four. Season four, which is maybe my favorite season, um, and Marco does see that, and so the trigger, ultimately, of the Marco War... Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to end after this because uh, my post has gone way long. Uh, I'll have warned you about this in the beginning. Um, uh, my critique earlier uh, was just that the actual authors of the books don't spend much time talking out of the mouths um, or out of at least hear us hearing the brains of most of the good or bad guy generals and admirals. It's through politicians, corporate people, but mostly the main you know characters who are sort of in the middle somewhere, um, from Holden to uh, to um, Drummer to you know to 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 the to Clarissa to you know to regular Belters and regular Earthers and so forth. Um, we're seeing it through them, and they're much more compelling. And so in the show, when they do try and do the Admiral Adama and 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 Colonel Ty and President Roslin and and Leah Dama are all arguing with each other on the CIC, and it's really tense and great. You know, every single time the main characters about start go at it, um, arguing usually ends up with punching, uh, physical punching for in many cases, definitely verbal punching and sparring. They don't know quite how to do that in this show, but I, I hold that less and less against the show as it goes on, mostly because they it went from cringeworthy to fine, um, and with and with better casting and writing. Um, once Amazon picked it up, so like Avasarala's Admiral Buddy here, I would have written him completely differently, but he's a great actor and has a great presence and they have great chemistry, um, and they're within a great story. So put all that together with the amazing directing of Thomas Jean and the rest of the crew, it works out, even though you know it didn't reach its full potential. I hold it less and less against them for the whole series um, because they sort of avoid uh, having to talk from the minds of uh, the admirals and the captains and the generals uh, who aren't our main characters um, in the book um, other than the Emperor High Consul Duarte of Laconia, but that happens after the show, so you'll have to read those books. So I'll stop there. My point was is that, you know, James Holden, and I think they do this in the show at least once, and I'll have to do it over and over again. In the book, they have to remind you a couple times as he has more and more sort of inner mental discoveries and thinks about it, that, you know, when they get to series and Marco stripped it, of course they're not going to like Marco, but they're not going to love the Earthers for coming back either. Um, and they don't disagree with everything Marco's saying about independence and, you know, and... Uh, and uh, stopping the heavy taxation and you know um, you know living longer eating better you know having rights and healthcare and so forth you know all that stuff is stuff they want and need and deserve and have rights to um but the even with zero education belters are street smart in a way no, none of the other uh, inners are and know that they can hate James Holden, Anna Sorella, and all the Earthers, and even Fred Johnson as much as they want, but Marco's way worse for their ultimate future, and they know it. Doesn't mean they're going to stop protesting and arguing for their rights, which is exactly what they should do. And they also see what Marco sees, and what Abbas sees, and what Holden definitely sees, which is that with the ring gates open, 
um, Earth is only important because even after killing 15 billion, it still has 15 billion and will regrow one day with, with science and effort. Um, and it's still the cradle of, of humankind um, and just the sheer number of people and infrastructure. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Mars has enough left, um, you know, to keep its thing going. Um, and there's plenty of belters who are also just independent out in the outer planets and about um, that, uh, you know, Earth will be probably fine. And if they're not, then go out to the outer planets. Mars maybe will be fine. It's looking pretty r- r- rugged here in these first two episodes, um, as we've seen in the books. Uh, once the the rogue fleet leaves, but even before then, going to the outer planets. Um, and if they're not, then the Earthers and or the Martians go to the outer planets. And they really don't need the Belters then. They're literally on another side of the galaxy with their own set of asteroids and outer planets and habitable planets, and they can just ignore what's going on in Sol's system. Writers do a great job in the books of making Sol's system important all the way to the end. Um, but, uh, you know, Marco's biggest argument that he doesn't really understand and can't parse into smaller, more actionable arguments uh, is that the, the Ringgate situation has made the Belters situation go from bad to irrelevant, which is way worse than bad, because they can just be ignored and they'll just all die because there's no economy. There's no need for them anymore. Um, they don't even need themselves anymore. <laughs> they can just leave the belt. Um, and so... Holden is already thinking about how to win the peace all through book six, even while the war is going on. Um, and uh, he ends up being very, very clutch, both at the end of book six and, as we'll see, at the end of season six, uh, and making sure the Belters do get empowered and we don't punish them for what Marco did. Um, and it's done through human relationships, and that's why the books in the series are so great, is that the big decisions are these big moral and ethical and political decisions, military decisions, and so forth. But in the end, it's individual human relationships between strong but ultimately morally centered characters like Holden and Avasarla and Drummer and Fred Johnson, even Monica with her underhanded media stuff that she's doing has a great heart and wants to help the cause. Um, there's enough good people on the different sides that when it's end of the universe time, or at least end of the solar system time, they can come together long enough in common cause and at least survive to the next big crisis. Holden can see that. Um, and as a reverse mirror of Marco, which we'll see going forward, as Naomi talks about Marco being wanting to be everything that Holden is, but will never be. It's, you know, of course, it makes Marco even more uh, homicidal towards Holden, as if he wasn't enough already. Um, but as dark mirrors, uh, uh, charismatic leaders of their, you know, people or whatever, um, under, understand m- more than most. Uh, how untenable the situation is and that they can't punish. We can't do what we did after World War One, where we punished Germany, which led to a not only remilitarization, remilitarization of Germany in World War II, but, you know, the Holocaust. Uh, whereas if the Versailles Treaty after World War One had acknowledged that all the sides were kind of in the wrong, unlike World War Two, where the Nazis were clearly the enemy, if they, you know, the Treaty of Versailles had been to help rebuild Germany. I mean, there's a reason we did the Marshall Plan after World War Two, which was to immediately rebuild Germany and Japan so they wouldn't remilitarize, and both of them have not been really militarized since then, especially Japan. 
Not so, they had to, we had to learn that through the Holocaust and the horrificness of World War II after punishing Germany in World War I for losing, but not really being responsible or any worse than the English or the French or so forth. Um, and Holden is also a student of history, um, even though he kind of talks like a dumb hippie sometimes. Uh, he knows that you have that winning the peace is more important, but also much harder than winning the war, and always happens or has to happen if you want to avoid just going from war to war to war with no break in between. So how do we win the peace? That's the kind of stuff you get in the books. But in addition to some big political speechification, it's all done through the folksy um, uh, colloquial language that the Expanse writers do so well that makes it so readable and that makes the characters so characters so relatable. Oh my god, thank you for sticking with me. That was maybe one of my longest outros ever. Almost at an hour 20 here for a sh show that was 51 minutes. Um, uh, but I'll have warned you. Uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, I'll uh, I knew I was going to do either the intro or outro long on this one because I want to go through the rest of the episodes and really hone in on the filmmaking and the acting and stuff I have been talking a lot about, um, but really focusing on the show, not just big picture big picture issues and not just um, you know book to screen, screen to book, etc. stuff, um, which is important, which is cool, and which is fun to talk about, um, but there's so much else going on. Uh, and we haven't started talking about Amos, and we see Naomi's journey get hairier and hairier, and you know Holden continue to learn, continue to learn, continue to process um, uh, as the unique uh, leader of, of all mankind. I mean, if anyone is, is an unspoken, unelected leader of all mankind that most people don't even like on any sides, but still th because he can't be bought and he can't tell a lie, ends up being always really the leader, at least from like a, a mascot perspective, Holden, uh, James Holden. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, the amazing performance uh, that we're just getting the surface of with Keon Alexander as his own version of Marco and Naros. That's very different from the book, um, but it's almost all due to acting choices, um, which play to his strengths as an actor, which are many and which are great. And I'm glad they didn't try and just um, convert Marco from the book. Um, and uh, I'll talk uh, a lot, especially this season, about how when I realized in this episode what they were and were not going to be able to accomplish um, page to screen uh, with, with all the limitations uh, in just the different formats, um, I came to peace with it and I just rolled with it. And actually there, were, there are some times when it's almost a little too loyal, um, although I'll never really hold against it for trying to be too loyal. Um, and almost all the you know, well, I criticize, like, you know, the Admiral character with Avasarl and some various side characters for not being fully fleshed out or as well realized as they could be. All the main characters get tons of meat. It's all within the spirit of the books and the characters. And, uh, you know, the best thing I can say is with, even though I occasionally ch slightly change their facial features and, like, in their head, and, like, you know, like, Naomi, when I'm reading the book, looks like, you know, Dominique Tipper, the actress, in my brain, She's a little bit taller and skinnier because, you know, the belters are. They had to cast Dominique Tipper because she was the best person for the job, but she's kind of short and full-bodied. They do great stuff with her hair and her makeup and, and, and costumes to, to make her at least seem uh, kind of skinnier than she is, um, even if she's not tall. Um, but all the important things about Naomi, from her voice to her face, uh, facial gestures to, you know, how, how she looks and conducts herself and moves and talks and so forth, um, you know, like almost all the characters, first level and second level side characters are in my head from the show. 
um, when I read the books. Fred Johnson is, uh, you know, all the Rossi characters are, um, uh, and, you know, I mean, and I want them to be, you know, they're not invading my, my, uh, mental image of the expanse brain space. They're there because I want them to be. And I don't know really a higher compliment I can pay to just the ensembleness of the whole thing. And, uh, has even made me appreciate the earlier seasons a lot more. Um, uh, but there's no doubt that season four, they hit their stride for good as, as a, a level show. Um, and, uh, by finishing with the two best books, five and six, and season five and six set themselves up for a massive victory among both new and old fans, and that indeed happened, and this will be remembered as one of the great shows of all time, like Battlestar has long stretches of being great, has some stretches of being not great, and uh, some stretches of being mostly good, with some weirdness, um, but in the grand scope, you take all the seasons of Battlestar, all the seasons of Expanse, as military sci-fi goes, for all the differences, I don't know too better, um, that fit into the sort of grand-scale military sci-fi, um, that even with the Cylons getting weird in Battlestar, and even with the introduction, increased introduction of, like, ancient powerful aliens in the book series of The Expanse, never gets as unrelatable (laughs) and hard to believe, um, as, like, Star Trek, um, uh, which has 300 years in the future just seems impossible, that level of technology and all the weird stuff that they find. Um, and, uh, you know, again, in both cases, um, you, you know, you have a couple great established actors um, and a lot of young actors, and some of them will have success going forward and some won't, and some will totally screw up their careers by being a fucking creepazoid, Cass Anvar. Um, but, uh, boy, did they love doing this show, um, and they wanted to keep doing it, and they were lucky enough to be able to keep doing it, and now they're in my headcanon, um, uh, even though Holden looks and sounds a little different, you know, Stephen Strait's right, right in there, um, and I appreciate more and more, more I go back and forth the media, um, uh, and even finding some limitations in the book, uh, books, which are not, which are not necessarily what I would call perfect books, um, but what is, okay, now I'm babbling, and we're at an hour 24, thank you so much for being with me, amazing job Thomas Jane directing, the whole cast, very good writing, film spectacularly, I didn't get to do a filmic thing, because we were talking big picture from the beginning, but rewatch this episode, uh, and uh, maybe do what I did, which is have it on mute, and just watch the filming of it with the colors, and the shots, and the framing, and the symbolism, and so forth, from the very first shot with the ice uh, bucket, presaging the rocks hitting earth goddamn thomas jane what a genius thank you expanse people and especially thank you listeners We're gonna keep trying to do these uh and we'll move through the season uh quicker um after this uh but this was the big turning point uh and then when we're done five and six hopefully have adam deets and maybe a couple other people on and we'll do some discussions about the the books and and the show and the legacy and and so forth but uh you know well there's a lot to mine on rewatches and rereadings for sure um uh, you know, it, it's it's mostly out on the surface, and it's just that there's so much goodness that you need multiple stuff. Um, it, it's, you know, even the sort of deep philosophical issues boiled down to, you know, the practicality of being a moral ethical person. And uh, it's really refreshing to see a very, very dark, scary sci-fi scenario that nevertheless has a Captain America kind of humanism to it in the end. It's represented by James fucking Holden.
Thank you for joining me. Uh, may the force be with you. Uh, may your uh, flip and burn be as painless as possible. Hopefully I won't have to go on too much crappy juice. Um, and uh, I will see you for episode four of season five, which is called Gao Gamela, and which, spoiler alert, we see the full genocide, spoiler alert, Fred Johnson gets murdered, and we see the awesome spider bot that invades Fred's office and steals the proto-molecule. Awesome, awesome, awesome episode of just expanse action um, uh, TV uh, as a story has, you know, gone from, you know, the Admiral putting ice in a bucket and trying to tell a bad joke to Avasarala to the end of the, of, the, of the human race, at the end of the episode. I mean, amazing what you can accomplish in 52 minutes of television when everything's coming together. And of course, we will keep tracking the increased awesomeness of the already insanely awesome Karaji as Kamina Drummer. So thanks again. May the force be with you. We'll be back soon with some more commentaries, but for now, the Bizzlecast is out.